Welcome to the Alliance Theatre Podcast, an exploration of theatre and the people who make it happen. Join us today in conversation with Patrick Myers and Maya Lawrence as they discuss how to find ways to merge both your art and your impact. Enjoy. Hey everyone, my name is Patrick Myers and I am the Education Process Manager for the Alliance Theatre. And I have the extreme fortune to find myself in conversation today with my friend and colleague, Maya Lawrence, who is a resident artist and administrator for the Alliance Theatre's Education Department. Now we talk about multi-hyphenates a lot in this business. For instance, terms like triple threat, uh, which indicates a performer who can sing, dance, and act. But I have never met someone who practices as many artistic disciplines in their work as Maya does. So Maya, I guess my first question for you is, would you mind giving us some context about who you are and how you define your artistic practice? Yeah, thank you, Patrick, for that really great introduction. So I am Maya and I would define my practice as an artist, an actor, a poet, and I would say I came to all those things by being a poet first. I started writing poetry when I was little, little. I think I remember my first poem, and it got read in class, and everyone was like, that is so good, and I was like, oh, this is a thing, and then I realized, oh, I can really express my feelings and tell stories through words. And then as I got older, I went to Frank Sinatra School of the Arts for high school and I became a drama major. And that's when I realized like people get paid to do this and I can do this for the rest of my life, which then led me to the breadcrumb of Spellman. And it just felt like who I was as a person embodied in a school. And I found so many pieces of myself as a black person, as a woman, as a black woman reflected back at me in a way that I really got to analyze what it meant to just be myself in that context. And that led to the Spelman Leadership Fellowship and started that as a way of tapping into knowing like I am this powerful person and being an actor isn't enough for me. Who the Actors are often the least powerful people in the room. They get the less control. And I was like, I want to, the you know, the, the slogan for Spellman is a choice to change the world. And I was like, what better way than changing the world than creating worlds? So that is, that is what I'm working on now, creating different realities and manifesting them in the world that we live in now. You mentioned the word breadcrumb as a way to describe your journey as an artist. And one of those breadcrumbs is the Spellman Leadership Fellowship. And I am curious to know how Spellman and our current, I don't like partnership, I guess is the right mm-hmm. word there, um, our current partnership. How do you think that engagement of that school helped you to, how that dialogue between different institutions has helped mm. you to be able to create these worlds mm. that you are envisioning? Mm. It's so interesting because I think we talk about institutions, they become these entities that are larger than ourselves. And there's often this, you know, at being a Spellman, there is like the Spellman woman prototype and tradition. 
And I recall being in the, in the institution and being like, well, I'm here, so I'm a Spelman woman. Um, and I get to define what that is. And I think coming into then another very large institution, cultural institution that has its own history, that has its own ideology, by me being there, I am now an influencer of the culture and I'm an influencer of what that institution means. And so I think what I love about this partnership and and being in between it is being able to use the power of this institution as, as Spelman College of being this place that caters specifically towards Black women and their impact in the world and using the power of this institution as the Alliance of being a place that transforms hearts and minds on stage and off, finding a way to merge my art with my impact um, and knowing that that is innately who I am and what I'm destined to do. And I think combining the missions of those two institutions that I represent um, has given me this platform to impact the world that I that I that I am living in. When you say impact, what is what do you hope that impact looks like? What is that footprint that you hope is uniquely yours? Mm, mm. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't see it as uniquely mine because I often think about I am in a continuum of greatness. Like I am not starting anything new. I'm not reinventing the wheel. There have been people and especially specifically black women that have led social change movements and impactful movements in our globe. And I see this as my way of being able to plug into that impact. And the way that I see it, it really is a world in which everyone is valued by just who they are. And uh, there's an understanding of like an inherent value in each person. I often say that we are our stories and understanding that each person has a responsibility to find the story of someone else and listen to the story of someone else. And all of those stories being held up by this thread that makes us human. So for me, this, this ideal, equitable, impactful world is one in which I can come into any institution with pink and blue hair and know that I'm still going to be value, valued, respected, and all of the amazingness that I am, I'm able to bring to the table instead of having to protect myself constantly. I do want to ask about that. You mentioned social movements and taking up the mantle that Black women have started before you and will continue to carry on uh, after you have passed along the torch. What are some of the practices that you engage in in your work currently that help to achieve that goal? The way the fellowship works is you start off very general throughout the theater and then you move into a specific department, and that for me was education. And then in your last year of the fellowship, because it's a three-year program, you're supposed to lead a project and like take a charge. And for me, I was really trying to figure out what that project would be, what I was passionate about. And it became this allyship program that we now have. 
And in my development of it, it was how do we use these skills that we have as a theater and apply that to social justice work and create an environment where people are genuinely, authentically able to be themselves and create space for other people to do the same thing. Um, what I love about theater is that we are constantly creating new realities on stage and other people get to experience those other realities in a very tangible way. And I think that is a testament to the power of theater and our imagination. And I think right now we're in a time where we're really able to reimagine a lot. <laughs> the way the world has always worked is no longer working. And we're in a place where we get to exercise this tool of imagination. So my work in developing the allyship program is creating a play space for people to reimagine the way that the world works and the way that their own world works so they can go back into whatever environment they're in and create that new reality that works for everyone. Um, so the allyship program, that's one thing I'm working on. And then currently, every year, we participate in the Mayor's Summer Reading Club and we commission an artist to write a book and I am the commissioned artist for next summer, which I'm over the moon about. And I'm currently working on a children's book about reimagining what the dark means. Um, I think often we hear the word dark and there's all these negative connotations and associations. And I'm writing a book to just create new positive associations to the word dark and to darkness at the same time that society is trying to grapple with reimagining blackness and darkness and what that means. So that is also what I'm working on right now. You're doing so many really cool projects. It's just <laughs> the cross section of your allyship training work mm -hmm. and then your artistry, you know, is centered on humanity and empathy and mm -hmm promotes social justice work. What resonates to you about that? So I think I have some superpowers and I think my superpowers are empathy. Um, I really can feel other people. Um, I think my superpower is curiosity. I am genuinely curious about the world and the way that the world works and how people are doing and who they are and creativity creativity is a form of intelligence that we often don't consider and that really is my superpower and so in the work that i do for both the allyship and as an artist it is how am i generating and creating ways for people to tap into their own curiosity and to tap into their own compassion i think it's so fascinating to talk about compassion and curiosity as superpowers that we possess. How, how can we best deploy those within an organization, especially if we're interested in activism and trying to create ideal and equitable workplaces where everyone feels welcome and safe to be their full selves? Mm-hmm. Um, I think of activism as an active reimagining. 
and this belief in actively reimagining and reconstructing and asking the important questions. And so I think wherever we are, um, you, we all have this ability to get information and then take that second thought and think about the information that we're getting and seeing does this align with who I am, what I believe, um, my vision for the world. And I think when we enter into institutions or when we're a part of larger organizations, we have a duty as members of those organizations to be actively processing the information that's happening. Um, I think like organizations and institutions are not beings, they are made up of beings. And so the more active that those beings are, um, the more that the institution as itself can thrive. But if we just rely on this institution that was built to just be what it is and we contribute to what it's been, then it dies out, you know, it, it becomes extinct. But if you have active thinking minds processing the information that is coming, we're on this network, then it becomes this living, breathing thing like we are. And that is innovation. That is being a part of the cutting edge. And that is activism. That is social justice. Um, because you talk about being social, like we are people. So it is about putting the focus on the power that people have and making that collective power versus everyone relinquishing their collective power for this, this institution or this standard. It feels like having such a superpower to utilize compassion and curiosity to create a better wor world is quite hard to reckon with, you know, it seems like a heavy responsibility. How did you come to terms with your own artistic voice in that regard? That's a really great question. I think I had to reimagine what it meant to be an artist because if I only saw being an artist as being on stage, or writing a script or writing a poem, then I would feel limited. Um, and I would feel uh, like I'm not tapping into my full purpose. But when I understand myself as an artist, as, some, as a person that is making and creating, I just have to find out what that avenue or that channel to put all of that energy into. Um, so, I am an artist that is actively creating the curriculum um, for our camps, or that is actively creating the curriculum for this allyship program, and putting that same love into making a poem as I do in the process of someone unlearning what their biases are. How have you taken care of yourself mm. um, in regards to protecting not only your individual artistic voice, but also dealing with, you know, barriers that are both structural, emotional. Mm. Um, and how do you find the resources both within and outside of yourself to be able to continue 
to pursue this artistic vision you have for yourself? Number one is community. I, I exist because of all the other people that exist around me um, and that have existed before me. And by relying on calling on my cousin when I need to laugh or last night, you know, today's the deadline for my book. And I had to call my best friend last night just so that I could think about something else and create that space in my brain. I think especially now in the middle of this pandemic and in the middle of this election season, in the middle of this racial injustice, it's even more so important to take care of myself. Um, it's even more important to rest. It's even more important to be paying attention to the way that my body is physically feeling in any moment, because if I'm not, no one else is going to be able to. And if my work is, is important, like I say it is, then I have to be the most important thing in order for that work to happen. So I think for me, it, like I said, it's that community. And I, I'm in a relationship with myself. Um, and so I really rely on how are you taking care of yourself? What have you done for yourself today? Um, not for the world, not for dismantling white supremacy. What have you done for Maya? Um, have I bought myself a new pair of sneakers last week. Um, next week is my birthday. I brought myself a new suit. So I think the really small things that seem frivolous are actually really important. Like I, I don't have the notifications on my phone so that when I don't want to think about something, I'm not being forced to. And I so we're, you know, I'm staying in my um, sister's house in Maryland during quarantine. And I'm here with all of my nieces and my nephew and they're, you know, babies and, and young kids. And so I really rely on like playtime, like really just being in my body, not having to do anything. This morning I brought, I built a Lego home for myself. Uh, so I think finding time to play, finding time to take care of myself, finding time to connect with my community is how I sustain my warrior spirit or my, my, my mission or my purpose. Oh man. Okay. So that was a great, a great answer. And it brought up multiple questions. So this may be like a, like, I might have some bullets that I'm like, you know, going through. Um, the first question that that brought to mind is you talk about being in a relationship with yourself <laughs> and using that relationship to be able to not only listen to what you need, but to <laughs> be able to engage in the community around you when they want to support you. Mm. And that seems like it requires an immense amount of trust in yourself and also mm. self-love. How do you curate and maintain that self-love? Mm. And how does that impact your artistry? Yeah. Um. Honestly, where do I start? I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm just because <laughs> that's a whole other interview. Um, so <laughs> I, you know, I started the relationship because I realized there were things that I wanted from other people that I hadn't even asked of myself yet, um, and it was like, 
how am I expecting someone else to give this to me if I'm not even taking the time, the energy, the resources to give it to myself first? So that's how that began. And it really turned into getting to know all of the sides of me. So knowing myself beyond just being an artist, but my who are you when you're not doing anything at all? And really, like, I, I journaled a lot during this time, asking, I think we all exist first as ourselves, but then all the versions that live in other people's minds, you know? And so, like, connecting with the people that are closest to me um, and seeing the parts of myself in them um, and really, like, claiming that and seeing that. And I think I realized, you know, there were, I was talking to Pearl as I've been developing my book and she's talked, she's like, Maya, you are a free, liberated, carefree black woman, like right from that space. Um, and I feel like during this time is when I felt the least free and liberated in myself. And so trying to find pieces of myself that remind me of who I am, um, and trying to curate space within my schedule to remind me of who I am. So I often will go outside just for a, a couple of minutes in between a meeting so that I can just stand under the tree and not be looking at a screen for a long time. Um, what was the question? Because now I, I went <laughs> off. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're talking about like, how do you maintain a sense of self-love when you're in a relationship with yourself you know like mm -hmm. i know that offline we were talking about you know having grace to understand that you're doing the mm -hmm. best you can mm -hmm. and i'm just curious to know what that looks like for you yeah i also i like i get in arguments with myself um mm -hmm. i really believe that conflict under safety is creativity um and so I often have to push against myself in order to get to the truth of something um, and get to the truth of what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. I, you know, in this process, like I was telling you, have had to remind myself to be kind um, and considerate and give myself the grace as I'm writing this book there is that imposter syndrome of like, how dare you? Or no, it's not that great. And having to sort of like write down and tell myself, I trust you. Like, I believe you. I believe in your talents and your abilities. I believe in your capability to do this thing that you've been called to do. So, I mean, I'm very intentional about building myself up and pushing against myself when I feel out of alignment that and that's really how the relationship started it was like I felt like I did so much soul work um, of understanding like what my life's mission is um, and because I really feel like I'm on the earth to wake up as much love as possible inside of people because I think love is the most powerful force that we all have access to and art has always been my vehicle of doing that. So I did a lot of soul work, but I hadn't done a lot of self work. I didn't do enough work of understanding who I am, what I like, what I don't like, what works for me, what doesn't, 
So it was trying to align both my soul work and my self work to get all the work done. Do you, so that just sounds so intrinsic to what your allyship training looks like and what that curriculum is. How do you encourage people to take that leap of faith that they can Mm. do that themselves so that Mm. they can access, you know, an anti-racist methodology within their own practice? Mm -hmm. Um, I think in the, in the training, I take the time to break down the fact that we are existing um, with these big ideologies, these big ideas that exist in the world. And those big ideas then get manifested into laws and policies and standards, which then inform the way that we treat each other on an interpersonal level, which then informs what we believe about ourselves on an internalized level or what we believe about the other people that share an identity or a community with us. And so I, I use that framework so that we're all understanding when we are trying to combat white supremacy or white supremacist ideology or heteronormative ideology or any other oppressive ideology that exists in the world, we have to attack it at many levels. So it's not enough to just not use racist words or to have a diverse set of people around you but it is looking at, okay, what are also like the structures that are in place that are allowing people to show up as their full selves um, and not just one part of their identity. The more that we are able to understand our world from this ideological, interpersonal, institutional, and individual level, we all get to focus on a different part and work on that and like be committed to that and, and dismantle it piece by piece. I, you know, I'm like, whatever you do in the world, there is something specifically unique about what you are capable of. And if your focus, if, if you are really great at typing or if you're really great at drawing and you commit that towards making a better world and you surround yourself with other people that are also like-minded in that, then we're, we're tackling a huge section of this beast together. So something that, you know, I think is deeply important to both of us is this idea of aesthetics and aesthetics as a vehicle to express our fuller selves mm-hmm. and how that can be received in spaces negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it can also be such a tool for... Um, not just a creative expression, but you're also manifesting who you want to be. Um, And one of the things that whenever someone talks about you is this ease in how your style sort of promotes like this idea of who is coming into the room. Mm. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what that looks like for you and Mm. why 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 (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um one as ironic as it is words are my least favorite form of communication um because i mean and i think that's why i'm so drawn to being a poet 
Um, it's because I'm trying to play with as many words as possible to express what I'm trying to say or what I feel or what I think. And words do me such a disservice um, because they're just, sometimes there just aren't the words to express what I'm trying to get across. Um, and I can't find the words. And so my aesthetic um, really does communicate for me um, and is a conversation. Um, like currently with my hair being pink and blue, it was a very personal, like one, I've just always really wanted pink and blue hair because there is something about this binary that really like connects to me um, and exploring this opposition. And also as a, uh, like an internal reminder of my allyship in the trans community and what it means for me to be an ally to the trans community and, and like actively a reminder of figuring that out. Um, so I think aesthetic, and I'm a Libra, so that's also just like a part of uh, the way that I see the world. But I think it really is that next level form of communication um, because words just aren't enough for me. What is it about the interplay between different artistic expressions like visual communication or um, verbal communication that we find in theater and also impacts your own artistic practice? How does that affect being able to create empathy um, in others? And what is it about that that speaks to you? It goes back to my concept of theater is this place where, and it's this art form that makes an imagination into a material manifestation and experience that other people are simultaneously experiencing. Um, I think, you know, it starts off with this vision or something or something you're inspired by and you create this world um, and then it goes on a stage and other people get to live in that world um, for however long the experience lasts. And I think that is something so unique about theater and the reason that theater is lived and will continue to live despite being in the Netflix age um, because there is, there is, as an audience and a live experience, you're not just an audience. Even if, even if it's not interactive, even if you really are just sitting there watching it, um, being in a space with other people experiencing a truth, someone else's truth, um, but having so many entry points into that truth, whether it's through the words, whether it's through song, um, whether it is through the set or the lights, you are experiencing a truth um, that makes us human. Even if the play isn't about humans, um, it really is us being in a room together, in a space together, experiencing something that will not exist once that moment is over. Um, and really having that mindfulness of appreciating something existing for that one moment in time, um, that, that new reality.
So one of the things that has really deeply affected our industry is the pandemic and COVID-19 and the shuttering of theaters um, to protect our patrons and artists. And this idea that we have lost that sense of that new reality because we can no longer gather in the same physical space. Do you think that we can recreate that digitally um, in this new frontier that we're finding ourselves? Or do you think that the virtual gathering creates something different? There is something to, <laughs> there's something to being on Zoom or whatever platform um, and knowing that someone is existing at the same time that you are and you're watching that thing happen. Um, and I think that's that same principle of theater. I think instead of, you know, sitting in a, sitting physically in the same space with someone, um, we are still sitting in the same space and time um, and experiencing a different reality together. Um, it's like we're sitting four dimensionally rather than right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's like we're st- it's still theater, just in a very different way, and for me, like a very accessible way, um, because you get to experience a different level of comfort, like being in being able to choose where you are and what you're wearing, and and not having to worry about that barrier. Um, and just focusing on like what is in front of you. I was talking with my therapist the other day and she said that there is a study that has been done that shows that we are much more vulnerable when we go into therapeutic spaces within Mm. our own homes Mm. um, because we're more willing to access that vulnerability. Mm. Do you find that Working in anti-racist allyship spaces um, and talking to people about, you know, issues of equity, issues of diversity, issues of inclusion within this realm, could that have happened in a pre-COVID world? I think, yes, because it was happening in the pre-COVID world, but I think what makes it really unique um, is, you know, I talk about capitalizing on the comfort around you to get outside of your comfort zone. Um, And how do we, you know, the trainings are us being in a space together, experiencing a way to reimagine the world which is uncomfortable, especially if there are things about the world that work really well for us or seemingly work really well for us. Um, And it's a painful experience to have to look at something um, and say, that's not what it's been this whole time. I'm really seeing the truth of it. And that's, that's a really hard thing to grasp. But I think by doing that in a space where other people, other people are willing to reimagine with you, um, 
creates also what I love about theater is a, it's a community. You are, you're, you're not just in your room by yourself on your phone streaming this thing. You're in an active process with other people around you. So what I love about doing the training through Zoom um, is, like I said, being able to capitalize on being in a comfortable space, but having to jump outside of that comfort zone and having a community of people that are willing to do that same thing with you at the same time. One reason why we're talking so much about anti-racist work and allyship training in particular is because of the WCU White American Theater Movement. Um, for anyone who may not be familiar, uh, the WCU White American Theater Movement was started as a collective of multi-generational, multidisciplinary Black, Indigenous, and people of color, otherwise known as BIPOC, theater makers that formed in reaction to the civil unrest in our country. In the about section of their website, they note that this is a broad collective built out of a deep love for the theater and a commitment to its evolution. And my question is, how do you, do you agree? Do you believe that, you know, the work that we're pursuing in this space is contributing to the evolution of the art form as a whole? Mm. What's interesting about the movement, and I think about all movements, is they're always controversial in, in, in response, like, because it's like what I said, it's hard to be looking at something and have to let go of it being what you've always known it to be. Um, and I think it takes a deep love in order to be able to do that and to say and say to other people like hey we need to look at this differently so i always i i i tell i tell uh some people i'm always down for a revolution <laughs> because because you look at you know revolution i really focus on that love like you can spell love in those words and it really is about a love of of self love of humanity um and and this love, this evolution. I think about storytelling is an intrinsic human trait. We are our stories, we live through story, we learn through story. And white American theater as it stands is a colonized version of story making and storytelling. And I think especially as people of the African diaspora, knowing that story is our, our right, um, story is our legacy, there is a necessity to defend it. And like I said, conflict under safety is creativity. It is innovation. So we have to be able to engage in conflict in order for something to move forward, um, in order to refine it and for it to be better than it, over, than it is and as it stands. So, you know, the white, we see you white American theater movement. I think for me, it, it, it became this moment of delineating between 
Maya as an individual artist and Maya as an artist within an institution. And it was like I was saying earlier, when you are a being inside of an institution, you have a commitment to use your thought processing and your like who you are, that living, breathing thing into making the institution that you're a part of a living, breathing thing which is difficult and and it takes a collective power it can't rely on an individual power and i think one thing i always say with my friends especially hershey milner because i gotta give a shout out to hershey is everyone has a place in the movement and that's the truth of it and so i think there are people who have to be outside and throwing stones at the window and there have to be people that are on the inside saying, hey, guess what? There's stones being thrown at our window. Can we do something about it now? It, 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 it works hand in hand. And that's how an institution grows. That's how an institution becomes viable. If there is conflict, if there is a push to evolve. What is one thing that you've learned in the most recent months that you have adapted into your practice as someone who has to deal with this work and answer these questions, you know, Mm -hmm. both personally and privately and professionally Mm -hmm. um, all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it, it really is grace. Um, Giving myself grace because I don't have all the answers to um, knowing that I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm only going to be able to do the best that I know and the best that I can and encouraging others to do the best that they can, but also extending grace for when they don't. Um, I think a lack of grace is is what causes the shame, is what causes the guilt, which then causes the defensiveness, which then (laughs) unravels all the work that we're attempting to do, that you are attempting to do on your individual journey. And I think if there is an initial commitment to the journey, commitment to know better and to do better, then the next step is also committing to grace, giving yourself grace as you stumble along the journey and giving grace to others as they are on their journeys. Because I think we, we all make mistakes and it's really easy to get to, an, 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 to be on a different level and say, how could you not see that? Or to get to another, another level and say, man, how did I not see that? But that's not constructive. It creates more guilt, more shame, more defensiveness. And I think if it is, I didn't see that. I see it now and I can do something about it. Um, And I think really trying to adopt this principle of grace so that we can move forward. And I think when I think about love, I'm a person who I feel very led by love and love doesn't settle. It keeps going, it keeps trying, even when there are mistakes. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. 
but it's really trusting on that intuition, that compass, that moral compass, and understanding that there's going to be the mistakes that are made, but to just keep trying and trying and trying and trying again. And if we're all trying and trying and trying and trying again, something's going to happen. You've been listening to the Alliance Theatre Podcast. For news and upcoming episodes, go to alliancetheater.org slash podcast. For questions, comments, concerns, and ideas, email podcast at alliancetheater.org.